When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarn. The Schmada Kid. Bull! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarn, and I'm back! Joined, as always, by a man who, I, I got to tell you, if I had to choose between t- having a tumor taken out of my stomach and being with Dan Baker, how big's the tumor? Dan, how you doing, buddy? Great to have you back. Great to be here, Dave. Oh, my goodness. Great to have you back in my life is what I mean. You have been helming this ship. And Absolutely. joined by Mean Mark Barry. Mean Mark, thank you so much for keeping the show in motion while I was on the bench on the shelf. I mean, we, we can't say anything about how good the motion was, but it was in motion. Yes. Technically f- moving forward. Technically. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you did, Dan. I'm sure you did. I thought it was good, too. It was good. And you know what? Also, thank you so much to the coach, Kevin McNutt. Coach, I know you're feeling a little silent today, but don't say a word if you admit that I am and always will be better at you in basketball. Okay. <sighs> He's saying nothing. All right, Coach isn't here this week. No, that was no, kind of low. Um, we got a hell of a show this week. I'm so excited. First and foremost, I'm going to do this in order, which is not the order of my happiness, because the first person I'm going to mention is the person who I'm happiest is here. That is my father-in-law, Ed Bollinger, a former football player at the Villanova University, a uh, longtime football fan. We're going to talk to him about how the game has changed and how the game has stayed the same. Very excited about this. We're going to introduce him after the break. And we are going to talk to Hassan Hassad, who you've never heard of, but pro wrestling fans have heard of him as Montel Vontavious Porter, otherwise known as MVP. Very interesting guy. Uh, someone who has not only a pro wrestling star, but he's also been to prison, and he comes from a family of police officers, yeah, he and he made the trip to Ferguson mm-hmm. uh, just to, for a team. So as he put it, he was tired of shaking his fist at the TV. So we're going to talk to MVP about his experience in Ferguson. And... We are going to talk to Jennifer Ring. I am so excited about this. She is the author of Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball. Guess what we're going to talk to her about? Uh, probably Monet Davis. Probably Monet yeah. Davis. Very <laughs> excited to speak to her about Monet Davis. Uh, and I'm, yeah, that, and Monet, all credit to Monet mm-hmm. Davis. But also, Jennifer Ring is from Nevada. So I'm curious who she was rooting for the other night with mm-hmm. uh, Las Vegas playing against Monet Davis. And notice I said Monet Davis and not Taney because all of the time it seemed like it was Monet Davis versus the entire state of Nevada. But hey, <laughs> the first thing we got to do is go to break. And we'll be back right after this with Ed Bollinger. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Mm. Lion Eyes by the Eagles. Great song. The only time you will ever hear anything positive said about the Eagles 
on this show. Uh, Holla! <laughs> Riley Cooper is a racist. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Although, according to Tony Dungy, that can bring a team together. We are back here on Edge of Sports Radio. So happy for our first guest. Wanted to have him on for, for a long time. Knows as much about football as anyone I've ever known. And somebody who is just a great credit to my existence, so I'm just happy to have him in studio. Ed Bollinger. Ed, how you doing, sir? Great, Dave. Thanks for having me. You know, we've talked about my being on this show for a long time, and we agreed that it would only happen when you've exhausted every possible guest <laughs> in the Baltimore, Washington. So today is the day. It is. I mean, we got through the double Z in my phone directory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm talking about the great Polish shot putter. Um, you know him? Arno Zizinski. I mean, he, he was He's busy. Great. So great. Ed Bollinger yeah. it is. I know you're a fan, Mark. I mean, oh, he, he's, he was the best he shot putter best. or something or something. whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was we're, great. We're moving on. Um, but Ed Baldrif, just for so, so folks out there know, have some sense of it. Can you give some sense um, the football you've played and how long you've been a fan of the game? Well, I've started playing in uh, high school, which dates back to 1960. So it gives you some idea of my, of my age. Played in high school, went to Villanova on a football scholarship, played there for four years. And I've been a fan, obviously, since I was, you know, 12. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's not a day that I don't think about football and enjoy talking about football, and, and uh, it's a great sport. And i got to say, where you've lived your whole life has quite the strong football connection to the NFL. Can you say something about Westminster, Maryland? Well, certainly, yeah, in the NFL, not so much at the college level, right. although I wish that were better. But uh, Westminster, Maryland was the training camp headquarters for the Baltimore Colts. Mm back when I was 10 or 11, 12 years old. I remember visiting there with uh, some of my friends and uh, watching, you know, Unitas and Barry and Donovan and Marchetti and all of those guys wow. practice and play. John uh, Mackey? Certainly John Mackey, yeah. At, at some Art point Donovan? Time, oh, Donovan for sure, yeah. And, and I think this is interesting to folks because, of course, there was a best-selling book a couple of years ago called Johnny U, which is being right. made into a movie, mm-hmm. and it talked a lot about the integration with the team and Westminster and how it was like different NFL, you know, regular folks walking around, getting second jobs in the community, drinking at the local bar. All that. All and, that and, stuff. And, you know, to, to that point, uh, a distant relative of mine uh, actually uh, – did dry cleaning for the Colts and, uh, and lived in the Westminster community and had the Colts over to his house all the time. I was there on a couple of different occasions. It, it was a special relationship between that team uh, and the uh, Westminster community. And then, of course, when the Ravens came to Baltimore for the first, I don't know how many years, up until two years ago, they came to Westminster as well. It wasn't quite the same community connection, mm-hmm. but you know, certainly Westminster rallied around the Ravens, as you can imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We were talking to Ed Bollinger. Uh, we're talking to him about football. So you said you've been playing since 1960. I know you've been a big fan for all these decades. Mm-hmm. How has the game changed? What's the greatest change that you've seen in the game in your time as a fan? And do you find the product in 2014 more or less entertaining than what you grew up watching? Well, the biggest changes are two words, size and speed. So from the time children are old enough to um, be taught how to train, lift weights, uh, condition themselves, they're starting that in school today. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, when I went to college to play football in college, we didn't even have a strength coach. We had a weight room that only a few people knew even how to use the weight room. Today, <laughs> it's a mandate from the time you're in the seventh grade to, uh, right. you know, to lift and to train and to do uh, things. So, t- so today's athletes are bigger and they're faster. 
and, and and that's you know that's that's probably the, the the biggest difference as far as entertainment is concerned. I'll be honest with you, the game itself is incredibly entertaining in my perspective. I'm a little uh, disappointed in some of the some of the uh, the way the NFL in particular is handling rules and officiating and the flags and that kind of thing. That's that can be disruptive. But I tell you what, when you leave the game alone. Boy, it's a it's it's a marvel to watch, in my opinion. I mean, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't yeah. this a big preseason controversy right now? The number of flags that are being thrown in the preseason. Why so many? They're they're trying out new rules. There are a lot of things: offensive pass interference, illegal contact, holding, have, have been really big things. But especially on the offensive side, uh, mm-hmm. push push offs have been something that hadn't been called at all previously, but have been more and more in this preseason. It's going to be interesting to see how that works with more kind of physical wide receivers. Jeez, at some point they might as well just put uh, mannequin dummies out there and have the, the wide receivers just run routes around stationary targets. Yeah, it's clearly a game of seven on seven with a few other people just kind of hanging around. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's uh, the NFL is all about entertainment uh, yeah. as well as sports, and uh, that's what it's leading to. Now, one quick thing I wanted to ask you is y- you recognize that the game um, has now a lot of rule changes uh, that, that puts restrictions on the defense, yet you also have said that you recognize that the side and size and speed is much more intense. So where do you fall on the issue of concussions and rules that some of the old-time players think the game is becoming the word they use is too soft, yet at the same time, I mean, Mike Ditka wasn't running against a guy 250 pounds who could run a 4-4-40. So where do you fall on this? Well, I think the, um, the heads-up uh, training that's going on today at the grassroots level is really where it has to has to start and expand. Teaching kids how to play the game correctly, coaches learning how to teach tackling, so that uh, that you reduce the the risk of concussions. It will never go away. Sure. And by the way. When football was created back in the early 1900s, there were probably more people dying playing football back then than than we would allow to happen today. Definitely. So the game has been has been unsafe in in some respects for a long period of time. But uh, um, so I think what we're doing to try to teach children how to tackle correctly is the right thing to do. I don't think we can change a lot in the game today with today's athletes. That's that's going to reduce it, except to keep the players who have concussions off the field, keep them from going back in, mm-hmm. like back in the old days when you know if your leg wasn't broken, you were supposed to go back in the game. No, I'm, I'm reading this out of print uh, memoir by Jim Brown that he wrote when he was still with the Cleveland Browns, and he tells stories in the book just in a happenstance way about not remembering entire halves of play, uh, being kicked in the side of the head one time. Sam Huff. Um, motioning to Paul Brown, Jim Brown's coach, and saying, why is this guy still in the game? I mean, things that are just pretty wild uh, because Jim Brown, of course, never missed a game Mm -hmm. in his career. I'd be remiss if before our time ends if I didn't ask you predictions for the Ravens, both in their division and in their conference. What's the ceiling for this team this year? Last year, pretty darn disappointing, starting with Joe Flacco, more interceptions than touchdowns, less than 60% completions. Uh, What's your expectation for this year? Well, I'm a a huge Raven fan, so my my desire, my inclination is to want to say something like 10 and 6 or, you know, 13 and 3 or something I mean, I think they're. 16 and 0. I think they're. I think they're an eight and eight, nine, seven team for a couple of reasons. I think they're better than they were a year ago. I think the Flacco that you saw last year is not much different than than, than who he really is. But here's my here's uh, why I think they're not going to improve too much. Maybe a, maybe one more win. First of all, the competition's gotten better. 
Cincinnati is good, and I think they're a little better. Pittsburgh, I think, is definitely better. The Browns, mm. I think, are definitely better. They play a pretty tough out-of-conference schedule when you think about Carolina and the Colts and the Saints and Atlanta. So, you know, to come in at 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, and seven would be quite an accomplishment, even, even though it's not much better record-wise than a year ago. But let me go to Mark, who's like an arbiter of these things. You just heard Ed Bollinger say that he expects the Steelers to be slightly better. Mm-hmm. I predicted the Steelers to go backwards, four and twelve. Who's more correct? I I've, I feel like it's a little bit closer to you, Dave. I think the defense, if everybody being healthy, with Troy Polamalu being the person out there, which so I much weed exactly too, yeah, among the running backs. Well, yeah, there's so, so much, much marijuana, and the offensive line could very well be the worst in the league. So that that's that's tough about that too. I think the Ravens nine and seven sounds about right, honestly. Yeah, I, I hope you're correct about the Steelers. That would make me feel very good. Yeah, not for my dad who's a Steelers fan, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to have to have you back, even if it's by phone during the season, maybe like every four weeks, just to chart how the Ravens are doing. You say nine and seven for the Ravens. I say, I say nine and seven for the Ravens in a second in a second wild card. What about you? Uh, I mean, eight and eight and just missing out. And just missing out—that yeah. would be yeah. a huge deal. Uh, hey, we got to go to break. Ed Bolger, thanks so much for joining us on Edge. Thank Sports you for Radio. having me, Dave. I appreciate it. I look forward fantastic. to it again. You better believe it. Hey, we'll be back right after this with MVP. One, two, don't one, two, move. Three, Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. We are back here on Edge of Sports Radio. His name is Hassan Assad, but pro wrestling fans know him as Montel Vontavious Porter, otherwise known as MVP. Now, last week, MVP, acting as Hassan, as he said to me, made the decision to travel to Ferguson, Missouri, because, as he put it, he was just tired of shaking his fist at the television. Now, I was able to speak with MVP while he was in Ferguson about why he felt compelled to make the journey. I've been saying this over and over. I just got tired of shaking my fist at the TV. My Mm -hmm. biggest issue was watching the militarized St. Louis County police come in with a heavy-handed approach to peaceful protesters, Mm -hmm. blackout, arresting journalists, and I just uh, felt like I had to speak up about our constitution being trampled on and our constitutional rights being violated. Now, you've been there now a couple of days. What's your sense of things on the ground? I was prepared for chaos, but last night was very calm in comparison to the previous nights. I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the local residents who were there in the chaos. Uh, One guy who was actually, uh, according to him, beaten up by the police in, in the process. And last night was extremely calm. Uh, there was peaceful protests, no violence, but there was no police presence. Earlier in the evening, there were a few black police officers and, uh, you know, uh, I think the local police chief. There was a, a minimized police presence. And as the night, as it got darker and as it got later, there were even less police. And I'm sad to say that uh, much, much later in the evening, probably around 1 a.m., a few police responded to a minor incident at McDonald's. There was nothing going on, and they left. Didn't bother anybody. And as they were leaving, that undesirable element that uh, likes to loot and create havoc were throwing rocks and bottles at, at the police cars as they left, which is counterproductive to do. But unfortunately, you always have that, that angst, you know. Wow. So what's your analysis of 
that. Why do you think that the streets were just clear of police last night? That seems like an incredible difference from the militarized scenes that we've seen in the media. I'll paraphrase, because I believe the quote was that the, I think the St. Louis County Police Department or Sheriff's Office, I forget exactly what the title is, hadn't even had an opportunity to drill for that type of situation. So I think what you had was a bunch of over-anxious individuals with improper training responding to a situation not knowing how to do so. As seen in some of the video footage and still shots, as well as by some of the accounts of the people that were there, you had officers on hand that instead of de-escalating the violence were intentionally escalating it, mocking the citizens. Uh, There's a still photo that I saw of some of the officers with their hands up. The major chant has been, hands up, don't shoot. And there have been people walking up and down the street with their hands up and, and T-shirts that say, hands up, don't shoot, because allegedly, well, according to eyewitness accounts, Mike Brown had his hands up in a surrender position when he was shot. There's actually a still photo floating around that I saw, and a number of individuals uh, related that they actually saw it uh, firsthand, of officers raising their hands up, mocking the protesters and the hands up, don't shoot, uh, pose. That's not professional. That's not an attempt to de-escalate violence. There was a talk of officers telling the animals to bring it. From what I understand, it was just a complete lack of professionalism and leadership. For four days, where, where were the local community leaders? Where was the governor? Where was the mayor? Where was the city council? Where were the people that should have stepped in and called for peace? Where are the people that should have stepped in and said, wait a minute, this is not how we handle these types of situations? Speaking of uh, leadership, I don't know if you knew this or not, MVP, but you are the first person from the world of athletics uh, to actually make the trip to Ferguson and offer yourself up in solidarity to what's happening there. Uh, Were you aware of that, and are you trying to actually be an example for others to try to leverage their fame to bring attention to what's happening here? I wasn't aware of that. I think it's rather unfortunate, but – you know, I, I can understand how, you know, people might not want to get involved, but that's part of my uh, my position is this apathy. I got tired of tweeting about it. I got tired of shaking my fist at the TV screen and talking about it. And, you know, I didn't come here as MVP. I came here as Hassan, a guy who wanted to stand up for my civil rights and everyone else's. And if my visibility as MVP can bring more attention to the violation of civil rights and, and, and the trampling of the Constitution, then that's cool too. But I didn't come as a quote-unquote celebrity or pro athlete. I just came as a citizen that was fed up. The last thing I would ask you is you have always been a very strong African-American character in an industry that does not have a history of strong African-American characters. Uh, do, do you feel like you're also – I'm making a statement to the world of professional wrestling that um, African-Americans need to be treated with more respect and less dehumanization than we've seen over the last many decades. Uh, While I wholeheartedly agree with your statement, that thought never crossed my mind, actually. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, one had nothing to do with the other. Um, You know, what I I said to uh, a few people in Ferguson, while the incident may have been set off by uh, racial distrust, disharmony, discord, whatever you want to call it, it quickly escalated to something much larger than that. Um, And in just this last month, there were four African-American men that were unarmed and killed by police. 
Um, you know, I think there has to be a conversation about use of force, use of deadly force, excessive use of force. And I want to make this very clear. My father was a cop. My brother's a cop. My sister-in-law was a cop. I'm, I'm the black sheep in a family of cops. Mm-hmm. I understand how difficult the job is. Um, I also understand that, you know, with great responsibility, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And police officers have to be held to a higher standard because we entrust our society to their care. And, you know, the problem is when you deal with humans, you deal with the frailty of, of the human psyche or the human ego, and people make mistakes. But when those mistakes are made, somebody has to be held accountable. And in this particular case, we don't have all the facts in yet about why this young man was shot and, and what, you know, whether the officer's life was in jeopardy or whether it's justifiable. Um, but eyewitnesses say that he turned with his hands up and was surrendering and was shot multiple times. If that is, in fact, the case, then somebody has to answer for that. And these other cases across the country, I'm not saying that all cops are bad. There are many that would like to say that, but I believe that you're complicit by inaction. If you witness something illegal take place and you don't take a step to correct it. And in this particular case, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Given that you come from a family of African-American police officers and given that you're clearly attuned to these issues, it seems appropriate to ask you, how big a problem do you think we have in this country of racism in the police departments of the United States, racism in the criminal justice system of the United States? How big a problem is that that needs to be confronted? Uh, wow. You got an hour? <laughs> <laughs> I'm patient. Whatever you want to say. Yeah, no, it, it you know, there are people that often, you know, I was going through my Twitter timeline, and there were people that were saying, you know, that um, racism doesn't exist anymore. Nobody's racist anymore. And to that I say, all you have to do is, is go on YouTube and read the comments. <laughs> um, you know, that will tell you just how racist people can be if they don't have to be called out on it. Um, where nowadays racism isn't, as overt as it was, say, you know, 50 years ago, it, it still exists. And I'm not just talking about white against black racism. There's black against white racism. There's, you know, Jewish against uh, uh, Muslim racism, you know, mm-hmm. Arab against, you know, all people, all cultures have some sort of, of racism. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. And I think that Part of the issue is that people aren't necessarily trying to take the steps to be uh, understanding or aware of other cultures. Um, I think people are willfully ignorant of other cultures. And black people, white people, Asian people, everybody's guilty of it. And I don't think that in the near future (laughs) we're going to see racism disappear in the criminal justice system. Of course it exists. Just look at the, the, the disparity in sentencing between people who deal crack cocaine and people who deal powder cocaine. We know that crack cocaine is prevalent in the African-American communities, and powder cocaine is a lot sexier, and it's, it's a little more expensive, and it's, it's uh, more in use by affluent people. But you're, you're, if you're caught with crack cocaine, the same amount of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine your sentence is, I think, five times more severe. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for that. 
Um, I think that there is racism. Uh, just recently, in, I believe it was in Florida, there were two or three cops that were fired from the department because they were exposed to uh, being active members of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. It exists. You can't deny that it exists. But uh, racism is due to uh, an unevolved thinking. And as a society, as, as a race, we have to become evolved thinkers. Where Our thinking has to evolve with, with, with our technology and everything else. If you don't like somebody because of the God that they worship or because of the color of their skin, there's something wrong with you, not them. Mm-hmm. But I'll also say this, you know, we don't, and when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, the African-American community, the inner city. A, a dialogue has to be had with young black men about how to communicate with white police officers specifically. You don't escalate the situation by saying, hey, man, why are you fucking with me? And, you know, they're, 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 you have to be able to communicate. And I think it happens on both sides. You have cops that, you know, unfortunately uh, don't de-escalate the situation. And by the same token, you have young men that, don't de-escalate the situation. And, they, you know, they say, man, I'm tired. I'm fed up of being racially profiled. Okay, well, when you're being taken into custody, at that moment, that's not the time to protest. That's not the time to resist arrest. That's not the time to cuss the cop out. Your best bet is just to try to be as polite as possible and, you know, go file a report or, or do whatever you can within the proper channels. And as we know often enough, it's, you, you know, they get swept under the rug. But if it happens enough, then something has to be done. Wow. Hey, MVP, Hassan, thank you so much for your time, sincerely. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any last word? Anything for your fans? Um, at this point, man, you know, it, I want to make it very clear. Um, they're, they're showing the video now about Michael Brown and the cigars that uh, he stole and the shop owner that he apparently had a physical altercation with during that that theft. However, it's now been revealed that the officer that stopped him had absolutely no idea that he was involved in that crime. And just because of that, now I'm seeing on, on my Twitter timeline and I'm hearing people say, oh, well, now we have to look at this in an entirely different light. Let's not be distracted from the issue at hand, and it's excessive use of force. And that leading to an overt trampling of our Constitution. Even if you are the most overt racist and you are glad that Michael Brown is dead, another young dead nigger, that makes you happy. You can't be happy about the response department that came in and just said, okay, as of this moment, the Constitution is, uh, is not valid. We're a media blackout. We're arresting journalists to try to take our pictures. or We're going to... Uh, Ban satellite trucks from the area. There's a no-fly zone, so police, uh, so media helicopters can't report on the situation. This affects you too. This affects mm-hmm. everyone. And you know what? Today it's somebody else's kid, somebody else's neighborhood. Tomorrow it could very easily be your kid and your neighborhood. Thank you so much, Hassan Assad, aka MVP. Uh, we're going to be back right after this with Dr. Jennifer Ring. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back. 
here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by Mean Mark Barry. Hello, Mean Mark. Hello, Dave. And Ed Bollinger. How you doing, Ed? Hey, Dave. So glad you stuck with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, our next guest is a professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of two books on women in baseball, Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball, and her new book coming out in spring 2015, which is fantastic, by the way. You people should pre-order it. It's called A Game of Their Own, Voices of Contemporary Women in Baseball. Her name is Jennifer Ring. Dr. Ring, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Dave. Good to talk to you. And I would just say for folks out there, if you want to read about, it's an amazing story about Jennifer Ring's daughter's experience and very uh, difficult experience in Las Vegas Little League. It's it's out, it's outlined. Yeah, in actually, stolen, it was Reno Little yeah, League. Yeah, Reno Little League. In Stolen Bases, Why American Girls Don't Play Baseball. You talk about that. So let's just start with that, just for our listeners. Um, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but why don't more girls play baseball? Uh, well, the short answer is um, they're pushed out at age 12, and they know that, that they're going to be pressured to play softball, and softball is the institution that has been developed as a, a parallel universe for girls, and um, the, the pressure is extraordinary. Very few girls, um, and I, I highlight some of them in, in uh, my new book, but, but very few girls want that pressure in adolescence to mm-hmm. stay with baseball, and um, I think a lot of the girls who go to softball would prefer, if they started in Little League, to stay with Little League. Um, but, uh, you know, there there isn't competitive girls' baseball in this country. So they either have a choice of playing with adolescent boys and invariably being the only girl on the team. I mean, look at Monet is so poised. I mean, she's She's just incredible, but she's dealing not only with a lot of admiration and support, but with a lot of doubters. So, you know, if you read the online commentary, it's all, well, she's not going to make it on the big diamond and wait till adolescence hits, and, and she can't do this and she can't do that. And um, you get sick of that, uh, you know, especially mm-hmm. a young person. It's discouraging. Are, are there qualities so, you know, that you saw in Monet Davis that are, that, are, that are similar or common threads with some of the young women you spoke to for your book, A Game of Their Own? Uh, yes. I, you know, I mean, she's... It, well, you know, what, what's interesting also about Monet, I mean, she's obviously a, a gifted and versatile multi-sport athlete if her goal is to play basketball. But there you have it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's exactly the problem. I, I try to imagine a, a 13-year-old boy with the talent and and the composure um, and the athletic presence of Monet Davis saying, oh, no, he didn't, never thinks of playing Major League Baseball, you know, or doesn't think of high school and, and college baseball. And it wouldn't happen, but she's already, you know, got her eye on – where there is a future for her. She's being funneled into another sport entirely. Yeah. I don't doubt she loves basketball. But, um, you know, so that that also uh, characterizes the women who I talk about in um, A Game of Their Own, which is focused on oral histories of 10 women who play on the USA Baseball National Women's Team. And they all... You know, they're all poised. They all they love baseball. They didn't have most of them didn't have another sport that they were interested in, and went to softball under duress, or a couple of them turned to volleyball. Um, so, but you know, I mean, Monet is not alone. We tend to have this amnesia about mm-hmm. 
girls who play baseball, and everyone who appears seems to be the first, you mm-hmm. know, and there's major exceptions. So, you know, Monet is actually a part of a pretty long line of exceptional young women who have been playing baseball successfully with boys and men since the very early part of the 20th century, certainly. Now, now Dr. Ring, you just uh, almost like you were looking at my notes for my next question, because I was going to talk about that, too. The way the, the narrative around Monet Davis is almost like she is a first but can you talk a little bit about that historical continuity of women who've played baseball? I mean, I know about Mamie Peanut Johnson, who went 33-8 and eight in the Negro Leagues, uh, being yeah. five feet tall, weighing 105 pounds, which is <laughs> yeah. just, I wish there was video. <laughs> That's all yeah, I can say. Yeah, and, and, and coach, coach taught to play by, but taught to pitch by Satchel Page. Yeah. It's yeah. an amazing story, but but that that's that's not the whole story either, right? No, no, and you know, actually, an, another famous Negro League ball player was Tony Stone, who was a second base woman um, on the, I think, the Indianapolis Clowns. Um, but and you know, it's interesting also because Monet Davis um, and many of her teammates are African American ball players in what has been stubbornly a white man's sport. You know, I know it's been integrated with Latin Americans and that we have Jackie Robinson, but but essentially one of baseball's challenges has been to um, attract talented young African-American boys to the game. Um, and the, the first professional women's barnstorming team was actually a group of African-American women in the 19th century um, called Dolly Varden, from Philadelphia, actually. <laughs> really? Name, you know, yeah. Uh, there, there were two two black women's teams, one from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the other from Chester, Pennsylvania, and they often played each other and traveled together. And, of course, they were dismissed. I mean, they, they were, you know, was regarded as a, a stunt. Um, there was an African-American woman out of Chicago in 1920. Her name was Madam J.H. Caldwell, and she had a barnstorming team called the um, uh, Madam Caldwell Chicago Bloomer Girls, and, and they played men's teams. Hmm. And actually, they played some women's teams, too. They played a, a team of Jewish girls from Chicago called the Hebrew Maidens. So I, The you Hebrew know, the Maidens. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> from the Chicago Hebrew Institute, which is, you know, like a Jewish community center. Wow. I have to say that there there's a, a Jewish sports museum that I have been to that had no mention of the Hebrew maidens. But <laughs> they, but so were, much about Sandy Koufax. <laughs> but nothing right, there you go. <laughs> but nothing about the Hebrew maidens. That that's yeah, that's a know, shame. Can you imagine, you know, Madam Caldwell um uh Bloomer Girls, a, a group of black girls playing a group of Jewish girls and this is going on in nineteen twenty while the Chicago uh you know, the White Sox scandal is going on. So wow. uh, uh, you know, it really is an American sport. And and there are plenty of women who who um have played it. There's um you know, but they tend to be dismissed. Uh, Jackie Mitchell, uh who who uh pitched to she played for the Chattanooga Lookout, so this is, you know, professional baseball. And that was a New York Yankees farm team, and the Yankees came to play them in Chattanooga, and she struck out Babe Ruth, and she struck out Lou Gehrig. 
And uh, then Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the commissioner of baseball at that point, banned women from baseball. I mean, that's been the response. The, wow. the press said oh, this was a stunt. She didn't really do it. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig just volunteered to be humiliated, I, <laughs> which it seems unlikely. And, um, yes. you know, and then she got banned from baseball anyway. God, so, I, I love these stories. These are amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my, my co-hosts here, Ed Bollinger, he has a question for you. Doctor, mm-hmm. um, fascinating subject, and uh, thanks for joining us. I would love to know how you would build the foundation. So when my daughters were growing mm-hmm. up, I coached them in girls' softball. They were anxious to play. Um, if, uh, but I don't think either uh, were anxious, nor do I think a massive group of their friends were anxious to, to play baseball in the traditional Little League sense. Would you... Would you think to build this from the ground up that there should be girls' baseball leagues so that kind of like, you know, a league of our own, girls' teams could form, girls could build skill levels and that kind of thing? How would how would it work yeah. in your perfect world? Great question. That, that is a great question. And um, and it, it's also, I think you've, you know, hinted at the answer. I most of most of the elite women baseball players that I interviewed um, for a game of their own would have preferred to play with all girls if there had been all competitive all girls baseball available to them. None of them particularly want to play on all boys teams. Uh, you know, little league is fine, but they you know they'd rather play with girls if they could. Um, actually, Canada and Australia have programs where girls and boys play together at a young age, um, up to about either age 12 or 14. And at that point, they have a choice about whether they want to go on to same-sex teams or continue to play on co-ed teams. And they have very effective women's baseball programs. Uh, You know, it's not as much as I certainly would like to see, but they have competitive national teams, and they always give... Team USA a run for their money. So I would like to see something like that in in the United States. I mean, girls have been playing baseball all along. They were pretty much pushed out when in in the 20s and the 30s when softball was invented as this girls baseball. So I'd like to see girls and boys playing together. I think that's healthy anyway emotionally. I mean to not have this mystery about the other sex. So when they're and I think it would make plus, seventh grade dances a lot less awkward if there was more <laughs> co-ed yes, teams. I'll yeah. tell you that. No, I, I definitely think for the emotional health and the sexual health of the nation, girls and boys should play together when they're young. Dr. Um, Ring, thank And you. so I, w- I see a kind of a, you know, a um, sexually integrated little league up to a certain age, and then I think girls' baseball should be made available, probably in the teens. And um, I like the idea of choice, of not just funneling people Mm -hmm. into a sport or with teammates that, you know, most of the girls that I've interviewed, their best friends were their boy baseball teammates, Mm. you know, throughout childhood. And then they're suddenly told at age 12 they can't play anymore. The book so, is a game of their own, Voices of Contemporary Women in Baseball. I'm so sorry to cut you off, Dr. Ring, up against a hard break. Thank you so much for joining us on Edge of Sports uh, Radio. Thanks very much, Dave. It's Pleasure. terrific. Okay, we got to go to break. We'll wrap up the show with Noah Tilton. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. 
Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, wrapping up the show with one of the great high school football players in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. I know, it's just a hype machine on Edge of Sports Radio. We're trying to brand this guy. Got money to make. His name, Noah Tilton. Noah, how you doing, sir? I'm, I'm doing good. It's glad to be back here. Uh, Noah, look, I have a theory that teenagers don't read books, and yet you say that you read the book I wrote, Brazil's Dance with the Devil. Is it this is. true? It is. I you read the read book. It. I did. You read the book. I read the book. You ready for some true or false? Yes. So true or false, let's just roll through this. In Brazil, the primary language is Spanish. False. All right, what is it then? Portuguese. Okay, very good. True or false, there are more people of Japanese descent anywhere on earth outside of Japan in Brazil. Uh, Like there's more Japanese people in Brazil? than Yes, like number one is Japan and number two is Brazil as true. far as people. True. That is true. Very good. True or false, Sao Paulo a city of almost uh, 25 million people, has a larger economy than all of Argentina. Ooh. True. That is true. Very good. Okay. He's this guy. So you might, it seems like you read the book. I did okay. read the book. All right. True or false, there is a statue in one of the favelas of the great artist Prince. False. It's Michael Jackson. Very good. He read the book. Oh, my God. All right. Lastly, true or false? Why? Uh, no, no, true or false. Just a question. Why are okay. people's opinions about Pele conflicted in Brazil? What's oh. the, give, give me some of the good and the bad for Pele. He was a great player, but he was a little too much of a brand as not really a person. Wow. You, you've read the book, yeah, Noah. And so, and any any other impre- now, you get all credit. I'm making the I'm not worthy sign to you. I, I I am so sorry. I slurred your generation by saying you do not read. I'm proud of the fact that you read the book. Any last impressions? Should people buy it? Yes, oh, that's they shameless. should buy it. Thank you. So- they should buy it. <laughs> I say with my fist cocked. No, no, no. <laughs> thank you so much, man. It, it, actually, it's it's my honor that you read the book, man. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Awesome. You heard that? You see, Dan, you who dismissed the book so brutally. Hey, this is Edge of Sports Radio. Said I shouldn't even write it. I'm Dave Zyron. For Ed Bollinger, for Mean Mark Barry, for MVP, for Jennifer Ring, we are out of here. Peace! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.